Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini, and they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome into Legal Face Off. It is the first episode of December here. The Legal Eagles are here. Rich Lankov, Tina Martini. Look at this. Happy Hanukkah, Rich. The Hanukkah edition. The Hanukkah miracle. <laughs> it's incredible. Tina, do you like it? It's multi-festive colored. I love it. But where's the Festivus sign? Uh, that's in the mail. That'll be here probably. <laughs> Probably after the show. So lots to get to per usual. We will talk about preemptive pardons, jury duty challenges during the pandemic, and also the legal grab bag at the end of the show. But we begin with Cuomo, COVID-19, and SCOTUS. There's plenty to get to. So let's, without further ado, bring in Perry Dane, professor of law at Rutgers Law School. Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Daniel Mack, who's a professor of law at George Washington School of Law and the director of the ACLU Program on Freedom of Religion and Belief. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks. So gentlemen, last week in a 5-4 decision, the Supreme Court struck down an order by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo that had restricted the size of religious gatherings in certain areas of New York where COVID-19 infection rates had been climbing. The governor had imposed 10 and 25 person capacity limits on churches and other houses of worship in those areas, and those were struck down by the court. Professor Dane, can you please tell us more about this decision? Sure. So um, the state of New York had imposed a number of restrictions on activities during the, during the COVID pandemic. And um, one of the features of the governor's order and this is true in other states as well, is that it picked out religious houses of worship as a separate category. Uh, And the Supreme Court struck that down, uh, at least preliminarily, with an instinct that there was some element of religious discrimination going on. Uh, And I have to say, I'm a... I'm of two minds about this uh, this whole thing. Uh, on the one hand, it's vital that government have the power to enforce public health rules. Uh, and it's also vital that religious groups be involved in that effort. And most are. Uh, one of the things that's not uh, quite as uh, uh, widely known as it should be is that most religious groups have gone overboard uh, to uh, restrict their activities for the sake of religious values, not just in in, in complying with the law. On the other hand, picking out religion as a separate category is is a problem. Uh, And uh, you can't entirely blame the court for being suspicious that there's some at least implicit bias going on. Professor Mack, what what do you think of the decision, especially in light of the current makeup of the court? Because you know, this was the first decision with uh, Justice uh, Barrett, and uh, it was a close decision, 5-4. And obviously what we're dealing with here is the fundamental uh, conflict between one's First Amendment rights for practicing your religion without government interference 
And on the other hand, during a unprecedented pandemic, the state's right to enforce laws that are meant to ensure the well-being of its citizens, even though sometimes those citizens may not want that, you know, those laws. So what are your feelings on A, the decision, and B, how the current court makeup may have affected the 5-4 decision? So as to the decision, I, I think, you know, one of the basic principles is that religious freedom is this important core constitutional right, but like other constitutional rights, it's not absolute. And it doesn't completely strip governments of the ability to address public health crises. And so I think the real issue in this case and in other cases is whether the government can address the COVID pandemic with neutral orders based on objective scientific criteria. So they can make distinctions where those distinctions are not targeted at religion per se, but are targeted at um, an analysis that looks at how much is this disease going to spread in these different contexts. And what the state had argued um, and what the five uh, justice majority rejected, uh, but I think the state had it right, was that not only were they not singling out um, houses of worship for disfavored treatment, they were in fact treating them better than other similarly situated non-religious gatherings. So the question is, what do you compare it to? If you compare it to a grocery store, grocery stores had fewer restrictions on them. But if you compare it to something that's similar, like an indoor assembly where people um, are there for long periods of time and talking and singing, they were actually treated better, uh, but the court didn't see it that way. So as to how has the court changed, I mean, this is a dramatic illustration of how the court has changed because uh, prior to this decision, the court had in several cases gone the other way. There were a few decisions, um, even just from a few months ago, where similar challenges were made, the facts were slightly different, but there was a 5-4 majority to reject those challenges. But now we have the Justice Barrett switch, and as a result, um, the outcomes are different. So, gentlemen, Governor Cuomo has commented that this decision is limited in scope and was essentially moot because the conditions under which the order was instituted had largely disappeared because the surge of COVID-19 cases in this particular region of New York had gone down. And Governor Cuomo was, was quick to add that it was in large part due to the very orders that had been struck down in this case. Um, but there are some various religious leaders and others who have declared that this decision is historic. What are your thoughts on the practical implications of this decision, particularly against the backdrop of the 20 or so other cases involving religious institutions that are currently pending in other states? Professor Mack, would you like to kick things off with that one? Sure. Um, I think the short answer is it remains to be seen how big of a decision this is. Um, first of all, it's only a preliminary assessment, so they stay the enforcement of these challenged orders while the cases make their way through the courts. It certainly does offer a glimpse of how five members of the current court view these issues, but, but even there, I, I'm not sure, uh, I, I don't think we should read too much into it just yet. I mean, we're gonna have to see, but for example, the, the majority opinion uh, in this case, which was an unsigned opinion, went out of its way to focus on the severity of the strict limits. So there was a 10-person limit in the red zone um, 
under the challenge order. And the court said, well, that's really harsh. And the state can impose less harsh measures like what some other places have been doing, like tying maximum attendance to the size of the church or the synagogue. In other words, you can have X percent, like 10 percent, 25 percent of total capacity. And and, um, the court reiterated, uh, I think, an important point. This is the majority that that judges aren't health experts and should respect the judgment of those with special expertise. So um, and some of the concurrences, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence um, said that, again, the state does have the authority to to impose tailored restrictions, even really strict ones. So I think we have to wait and see um, what they do with the next round of these and with other uh, religious liberty cases that may be uh, coming down the line. Professor Dean, what are your thoughts? So I actually agree that that uh, that New York got it right. Um, but I do think that one of the, the practical consequences of this is that state governments, local governments all around the country will in some sense have to go back to the drawing board and try to come up with criteria that don't specify uh, religious houses of worship as a, as a separate category. Now, that's going to be hard because, uh, as Professor Mack pointed out, it's not obvious what larger category houses of worship fall into. They're not like theaters on the one hand. They're not like Walmart on the other. Uh, but I think there's going to need to be some effort to satisfy the court to come up with more neutral criteria. And that leads me to, to another point. One of the vital sort of interesting things about these cases is that these are not religious exemption cases. Uh, historically, religious groups have often tried to get an exemption from a neutral law. And there's a whole debate that's been going on for decades about whether there's a constitutional right to uh, to be able to claim such exemptions. The arguments here are very different. The arguments here are, for better or worse, are that the laws aren't neutral in, in the first place. The other just quick thing point, that's worth pointing out is that one of the unfortunate aspects of this whole thing is that uh, this debate about religious freedom, like a lot of other recent debates about religious freedom, has been has become totally wrapped up in the larger culture wars. Uh, as I said a little while ago, most religious groups are not only complying with the law, but they're actually bending over backwards because they feel very strongly about the religious value of, of preserving life and health. Uh, but a lot of that tends to be overlooked because we've taken this very uh, tribal identity-based perspective on on these sorts of conflicts. Uh, and that's incredibly unfortunate, both for the law and for religion. Professor Dane, Professor Mack, thank you both for your time. Happy holidays and enjoy the rest of your year in 2020 here. Thanks for joining us on Legal Face Off. Thank you. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy. 
and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka, and Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas, starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Face-Off since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. We return to Legal Faceoff here, joined by Lewis Michael Seidman, who's the Carmack Waterhouse Professor of Constitutional Law at Georgetown Law, and also the author of the book on constitutional disobedience, available wherever you find your literature. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. Professor, um, Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution unequivocally gives the president power to pardon others. What's not so clear is whether it also conveys upon the chief executive the power to pardon himself, which is being discussed now um, in what looks like to be the waning days of the Trump presidency. So can uh, President Trump pardon himself on the way out of the White House? So I'm, I'm happy to answer that question. But before I do, let me just say, if I were Donald Trump's advisor, and I'm not, uh, I would really counsel him against doing that just from his own, the point of view of his own self-interest. And the reason for that is that on the one hand, the Biden administration, I think, has no appetite for prosecuting him. But on the other, so he doesn't need the pardon. But on the other hand, if he were to do that, I think that would create a lot of pressure uh, for the Biden administration to, to prosecute him because of the outrage of what he did. And it would also put pressure on state authorities to prosecute him, and the pardon wouldn't reach them. So I think it's a really bad idea. Now, can he get away with it? Um, as with so many constitutional questions, there's not a clear answer. That's how I make my living. Um, but I think most people who've looked at it think that it, it goes against the whole purpose uh, of the pardon power. Pardons are supposed to be acts of grace, that and, and forgiveness, not acts that people do to themselves to better their own self-interest. What about, um, there's also been discussion or even outright suggestions by uh, some like Representative Matt Gates and, and Sean Hannity, some on the right, have suggested that on the way out, President Trump should grant a prospective pardon to members of his family. Uh, I think there's two issues wrapped up there. Number one, what is a prospective pardon? Is that constitutional? Is that legal for a crime that has not been committed? I think most constitutional scholars would agree that you can't just write someone a blank check to commit a crime in the future and then get off scot-free from that. The second question is, can you, um, well, you probably can grant a pardon to your family members. Should he? Is it ethical? And does that, any of that matter it doesn't matter to Trump if it's ethical. So a couple questions wrapped up in that, in that question, I know. Okay, so uh, with regard to the first question, you're right. Uh, there are 
very few things that are clear about the pardon power, but one thing that is clear is you can't pardon somebody for a crime they haven't already committed. Uh, so, so that's something he can't do for himself or for anybody else. Um, with regard to the second question, um, yes, I think in some sense he has the power to pardon um, his uh, friends and relatives, but I also think that uh, the act of pardon might itself be a criminal offense. Um, so if he's doing it for a corrupt purpose, and in particular to obstruct justice by preventing people from testifying against him, um, that might be a crime. I also think the pardon power, like every other power, is subject to the rest of the Constitution. So, for example, uh, the president could not um, constitutionally pardon all white people for any crimes they've committed against black people. That would violate uh, the Equal Protection Clause. And if he's exercising his pardon power not to violate that provision, but to violate the provision that requires that the laws be faithfully executed, I think that might be unconstitutional as well. Professor, uh, last question here on Legal Faceoff. You mentioned that the Biden administration and Biden himself will likely not have the appetite to put the country through a federal prosecution of an ex-president. But that you also mentioned the state cases, and the most notable one is the New York case where the Attorney General of New York is and has been actively investigating not just Trump and not just his family members, but the organization. That one seems to have more of a chance to uh, continue. But to your earlier point, the Article 2, Section 2 powers of the president don't cover state prosecutions, right? That's right, and I think that's where the more serious legal risk lies for, for the president. Uh, uh, he has no ability to tell the Manhattan District Attorney what to do, and as best I can see, uh, there's an active investigation going on there and a lot to investigate. Yeah, I mentioned the uh, Attorney General. You're right, it is the Manhattan uh, DA, correct? There's actually separate investigations going on with both the Manhattan DA and the New York State Attorney General. Right now, the, the state case is only civil, but it could become criminal, and the uh, Manhattan DA seems to be interested in a criminal prosecution. So we, we may have some uh, exciting events uh, ahead of us, even if the Biden administration is reluctant to act against Trump. He is Professor Lewis Michael Seidman from Georgetown Law. And the book, check it out wherever you find your books on constitutional disobedience. Professor, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. 
You can like Legal Faceoff on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And after you listen to our content, please rate and review the show. Joining us now, we head to South Carolina to talk to Chris Adams, Adams and Bischoff, and also the president of National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, NACDL.org. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Chris, I'm a fellow uh, jury trial attorney on the civil side. So uh, we're having some difficult times now, obviously, with the pandemic. Lots of courts across the country, including many at the federal level, have basically uh, put a hold on jury trials for a variety of reasons. Some are obvious, you know, people not showing up for jury duty, um, you know, litigants not wanting to appear, attorneys not wanting to appear. You feel that holding off on jury trials right now is a good idea. Explain to our listeners why. Well, it's an it's a tough idea when you look at what all the extra work we're going to have once there is a vaccine, but we think it's the only course of action right now. Uh, It would be tragic for there to be a misdemeanor or a low-level offense where jurors are summoned, compelled to come to court and and catch COVID and die, Or, or a defendant is forced to come in and leave his family and catches COVID and dies. Um, so this, we think the smart public policy is until there's a vaccine to just wait it out and, and to use good judgment. And I'll tell you, Rich, you're in, in Chicago and talking about the court shutting down. I'm in a red state and our courts have, have been open. Um, and not every court, most courts have been closed, but throughout the red states, there is a, a, many courts have been running, not at full speed. But, but there have been cosmetic trials occurring uh, throughout this pandemic, and it's created problems. So, Chris, there are other reasons that people have given for why this is not the time to be having jury trials. Um, for example, lack of diversity across jurors, as well as um, difficulty in trying to assess witness credibility, for example. Do you care to comment on those reasons? Uh, I would love to. Thank you, Tina. On So there are separate issues. How can we do a trial um, in COVID? And then what might the jury panel look like? And I have done a lot of work on COVID in the courts um, the last several months. It's almost been a full-time occupation of mine. Um, but the one issue that I've not seen a study on, but I, I, I feel it in my gut, is that we're having jury panels that are skewing more red. And the jurors who are showing up to their summons are more likely to have a MAGA hat in their car than, than they would be likely to have a Bernie sticker or a Biden-Harris sticker on their car. And that might be fine for me in a self-defense case. It might be fine for me in a case where I'm going to be attacking snitches uh, because the president has taken a strong stand against snitches. And, and says none of them should ever be believed. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not the biggest Donald Trump fan, but I can support him on that one uh, most of the time. And, and so in certain cases, that skewed jury panel might be a perfect jury panel for the defense. But in those cases, it's probably not the perfect jury panel for the alleged victims of crime. Um, in other cases, I would want a more blue jury panel. And and we're entitled to, under the Constitution, a fair cross-section, which isn't really, has never been, been looked at by political diversity, 
but it is a broad range of views from the community are supposed to be represented in, in, and come into court. And that just isn't, my feeling is that's just not happening now as we are at historic levels of poor turnout for jury summons. There was a case here not too long ago with over 500 juries summoned, 83 showed up. Um, so the, my first question, perhaps Rich's first question is, where are the other you know, 417? And I would want the sheriff or the marshal to go out and bring each of those individuals in so that I can make a record about fair cross-section. Nobody wants to go to those extremes um, in COVID. And, and really, honestly, no litigant should have to. Um, because of the public health necessity, we should just hold off on, on trials. And I lost your other thread, Tina. What was your other part of the question? Why don't I pick on that one, Tina, because it actually, sure. I think it flows into my next question a little bit, is if we should hold off on in-person jury trials like you advocate for, then the next question is, should we have jury trials by Zoom, by WebEx, by video, basically? I know some courts, uh, we covered one in Texas, for example, have experimented with that. I yeah. personally, as someone who does talk to jurors and you know, even when you're standing a few feet from them, can't decipher very well what they're going to think or what they're going to do, uh, would find it almost impossible to do that by Zoom. And also, I think a trier of fact would find it almost impossible to tell a witness's credibility over a video conference. I assume you feel the same, but tell us how you feel about video jury trials. So I'm aware of the one traffic ticket case that went forward in Texas, and, and i Surprised that the civil bar hasn't been pushing for more of these because there are less constitutional rights involved with a civil trial than in, in criminal trials. And I would think that there would be some plaintiffs' lawyers who would just want a trial date and would be willing to do it mostly by videotape depositions and a couple of Zoom witnesses and maybe one witness in person, but just please give us the trial date. I've not heard of that being common. Um, in criminal courts, where oftentimes, if you lose your defendant, you're going to prison. Um, most defense lawyers and most clients don't want to start negotiating away their constitutional rights. And, and I completely agree with Rich that a trial by Zoom or a trial behind a mask doesn't allow us to, you know, say, call it what you will, assess the credibility, size somebody up. Um, in a way that we can do in non-pandemic times. And so if that's the case, then I think that implicates constitutional rights. And I would advise no client to waive those just to get a case done during the pandemic. And it, it's interesting, I mean, this is a little bit of field, but there was a communication study years ago by a Professor Milgram who said 90% of communication is nonverbal. And in Western culture, that means a lot of facial expressions, eye contact, uh, smiling. Everyone criticizes Milgram uh, for finding that number is too high. But everyone does agree. <laughs> everyone else says, yeah, the number is more like 70 percent, 60 percent. Everyone knows that in Western culture, nonverbal communication is huge. And as part of the lawyer's duty to, to use their judgment to figure out how the communication's landing with each witness or with each juror, and you can't do that behind a mask. And you can't do that by Zoom. If the person's even looking, they probably are emailing. If they're doing Zoom like I am, they're multitasking whenever they're on there. And we can't really have that in, in felony, felony jury trials. 
Surely you're not multitasking during our interview, though, right, Chris? Not during this interview. I'm only drinking water and coffee and looking at my 19 pages of notes that are spread around. Well, you're very well prepared. So the last question we have is, you know, we're, we're talking during the show about the Supreme Court case, the decision involving um, Cuomo's COVID order and churches and synagogues and wanted to find out from you, what are your thoughts on how to distinguish jury trials from other types of gatherings, whether it's going to the supermarket or, or the religious gatherings, um, as I mentioned in the, in, in the case for the, that was or, before the Supreme or, or Court. Trump rallies for that matter. Or Trump rallies for that matter, right? Uh, so I, I, I have not read the uh, recent Supreme Court opinion, but I will say that we, we have issued a new report. NACDL had issued a report in June about not having COVID jury trials. We issued a new report in affiliation or in conjunction with the American or with the Association of, of Prosecutors, the APA, and with a public health group calling for court operators uh, to be prioritized for receiving the vaccine. And we believe that's necessary before courts fully reopen. And we're calling for, if you have a case on a docket, for lawyers, judges, bailiffs, prosecutors, witnesses, uh, defendants, defendants, handlers, if they're at jail, the jail guards, to be prioritized for vaccines, uh, jurors that we're going to bring in. And we're not, we don't take the position that they're the number one priority, but we do think that courts are a core function of government. And we've, out of uh, just being safe and smart, we've had to wait on courts. But there are a lot of people with their constitutional right to clear their name. uh, And we have to get courts going as soon as they're vaccines. And we think, uh, respectfully, nobody cares much about lawyers, but we think the court system needs to be able to re-engage and to get their function of government done. So we hope that we're prioritized in, in the vaccine rollout in the various states. And quickly, Chris, your group has put together a list of coronavirus resources and how coronavirus has affected the courts. Where can people learn more? Sam, thank you very much. At nacdl.org backslash content backslash coronavirus resources. nacdl.org slash content slash coronavirus resources. We have a ton of materials and would love for you to visit. That's Christopher Adams, Adams and Bischoff, and also the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Chris, thank you so much. Happy holidays, and we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you all very much. Stay safe. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncommon
uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. It's time for the Legal Grab Bag here on Legal Face Up, the way we wrap up every single show. Two guests and seven topics and hilarity will hopefully ensue. Joining us now from Neil Gerber and Eisenberg, she is Olivia Betty. Welcome to WGN. Welcome to Legal Face Off, Olivia. Hi. Hey, thanks, Sam. And Sam from right across the street, not this way, the other way. On Olivia is my uh, across the street neighbor. She knows all about my 3 a.m. parties and my you know various uh, uh, criminal activities going on in the house and. Best Halloween display in the city. If you guys missed it this year, come back next year. Believe me, they saw it. I, I, I'm famous for my Halloween decorations, but not so much for Hanukkah. I got I got up my Hanukkah game because Olivia's got some incredible Christmas uh, lights out there. Also joining us on the legal grab bag, Shane Simmons out of Chicago, a filmmaker, an actor, and I think arguably the best hair on the panel <laughs> at this point in time. <laughs> Hi, Shane. Welcome. Hi, uh, and thank you. Uh, it's great to be here. Uh, looking forward to chatting about these crazy stories we got. Shane's so up there, Sam, and you, the best uh, hair in the history of legal face. We got to go through the seven years and see, but he's definitely up there. It's got like a Harry Styles vibe going to it this, today. It's 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 incredible. Thank you. I uh, I can't take any credit for it. I I, I don't I don't uh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Just look at me next to Shane and look at. Like, it's impossible to believe we're the same species of, of follow. Oh, he's way too stylish for us lawyers. I mean, look at him. He's even got a cardigan on. We can't pull that off in, in law. <laughs> so our first topic, and I'm glad we didn't give out, like, Shane's social security number. We've already given out Olivia's street, so let, I'm glad that we didn't go that far. The first story is from the ABA Journal, and it comes out of Kentucky, where a group of applicants thought they passed the bar, but eh, not so much. Not so much. So... In a year that has been impossible because of COVID, and this, um, and on the show we had covered a couple of stories leading up to the bar about whether or not there should be a bar or shouldn't be a bar, and how it would be taken. Um, this is sort of like the icing on that cake, um, and a great way to end the year. So there were 15 folks um, in Kentucky who took the bar exam and got notification that they had passed the bar and were whooping it up and making all these plans and suddenly found out several days later, maybe not so much. Maybe they didn't pass the bar after all. So, um, you know, this is like everybody's worst nightmare. I, I, I think it's worse actually to flunk the exam and then know you flunk the exam in a timely fashion than to think you passed the bar and then go out and celebrate and then find out you didn't pass the bar. So what's interesting is that um, this was chalked up to a clerical error um, which I find really rather troubling that in this day and age, we have data entry errors when it comes to things like bar exam results. But there were three lucky people who thought they flung to actually pass the bar. So um, obviously the um, bar exam, the bar admissions office was very regretful of what happened and offered to pay everybody um, for their bar exam fees for February's bar but um, this actually is a real head scratcher in this day and age that this kind of thing can still happen. Well, the failures should, here's the remedy. The failures should get admitted for sure. It's, the, it's not their It's mistake. only fair. They should be swooped into the practice of law regardless of whether they're qualified. But listen, the inevitable questions, my friends, as lawyers and, 
as observers is going to be what are what wins the lawsuit, right? Uh, Shane, we'll see. Right. We'll see these people sue for a variety of, of damages, even though it's impossible to say that they really suffered any damages. But I would foresee some emotional distress claim yeah. as a result of this, which, you know, I guess I can understand, but we'll probably see a lawsuit. Uh, Olivia, you're, you're nodding your head. You agree on that? Uh, we'll see a lawsuit. I mean, we're, our country's just so litigious. And I don't know, for right or wrong, I mean, I just feel so bad for them, regardless. Like, I do feel really horrible for them. And it's got to be embarrassing. You know, they told grandma they passed, and they're like, oh, sorry, I have to take it again. I, I can't start my job. Um, it's pretty awful. It's the Shane, it's the Steve Harvey uh, phenomenon going on here. When remember Steve Harvey named the wrong Miss America and then said, whoops. Yeah, or uh, La La Land to uh, yeah. you know for the Oscars here. Uh, yeah, no, it's it's just again so sad to to see. Um, I think in terms of you know what what the the recourse is like, you know, you, you obviously covering the fees, but like you know, what if they don't pass next time? Like what you know beyond there's you talk about the emotional distress and all that. Um, you know, it's yeah, I think it's hard to prove like what monetary damages you know would be in place at this point unless you you know you you, you bought your uh your lease you signed up for your lease for your office you know and got the etching on the door and all that but uh yeah i don't know it's it's really just overall pretty sad <laughs> topic number two we go to the la times i'll just read the headline for you rich artist sues museum and the city of los angeles after his work is accidentally thrown away so, you know, when I first read about the headline on this, I thought it was kind of a funny story. Actually, it's an incredibly interesting story. It's one of the better ones we've had lately. We got to give credit to Emily, our booker, our producer on this, because she found the story really interesting and honestly chock full of so many different angles. The story is there's an artist in L.A. His name uh, is David Liu. He goes by the name of Shark Tooth. Um, and he had a uh, display at the Chinese American Museum in L.A., and his display was basically a series of, of bags, of burlap uh, bags. They were hand-painted with gold leaf. Um, and they were, you know, by all accounts, quite beautiful pieces of art. And they were hung up outside the museum. And then one day, uh, they were removed, not by the museum, but by uh, a city maintenance crew who took down the canvas bags and threw them away, uh, mistook them as either uh, not being used anymore or garbage. And the artist then sued uh, the museum and also the city of El Pueblo, uh, alleging that, you know, he wasn't done, that this was not a display that should have been disposed of. It was still an active display. And, and you know, the reason this case is so interesting is because I didn't know anything. You know, we've covered so many of these kind of stories, Tina, in the past, but, it you know, you always learn something. I didn't know about... Um, a cause of action called the Visual Arts Rights Act. Now, I know Tina and Olivia are in intellectual property, and you uh, deal with these kind of cases frequently, but I wasn't aware of the Visual Arts Rights Act, which is better known as VARA, which actually allows the imposition of damages ranging from $750 to $30,000 per item um, in these kind of cases. So I found that very interesting because we were talking earlier, Shane, about the measure of damages. And actually, each one of these bags individually, I think they were sold for like $88. After They were going to be sold for $88. Your immediate reaction is, well, okay, why would he file a lawsuit? The damages aren't extensive. But it goes way beyond that, given this act. And the last thing I'll say before I turn it over to Tina is, 
um, you know, the attorney involved who brought the lawsuit on behalf of the artist said something really interesting, said that, you know, if these were American flags, uh, they probably wouldn't be thrown away. And obviously, you know, that brings to mind this question of whether there was racism involved, whether there is either, you know, overt or latent racism involved in pulling down these, you know, bags by a Chinese American artist and, and threw them away. Uh, we covered in our last show, Tina, if you recall, the um, young Asian attorney who was doing a pro bono clinic for Asian businesses in Chinatown. We talked to her about, you know, uh, the reaction against Asian Americans in the wake of the pandemic. And this story, I think, is very much caught up in that. So really interesting story. And, and the lawsuit's ongoing. I want to hear from uh, 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 Tina. And then, Olivia, you're obviously very involved in a museum. You're on the board of trustees um, uh, for American Writers Museum. So I know this is in your wheelhouse. But Tina, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm not going to steal all the thunder. I want Olivia. We don't have IP guests on very often. And so I'd love to hear her thoughts on the merits of the actual copyright issues. But I mean, I found this case very interesting for the same reasons you did, Rich. I mean, at the end of the day, I think it wasn't an accident. I mean, at least that's the impression I got. I didn't get the, get the sense that this was disposed of in a way that was trying to make a statement or anything like that. I'd be interested to see, and one of the things I didn't really get to the bottom of was what the agreement was between the artist and the museum. I think that's really critical um, because there seems to be some um, you know, mixed messaging or, or conflict as to what the actual agreement was between the artist and the museum and what sort of agreement was there after this display. Like there's some question as to whether this was even considered art or a display for purposes of the museum. And so right. I think that's a pretty critical fact so, um, that, that we would need to get to the bottom of. That's a great uh, Olivia, we'll get you in a moment. <laughs> You're an artist, right? And the question that Tina raised as to whether the art museum considered art is really interesting because the artist, the plaintiff, David Liu, uh, said that he couldn't put a monetary value on the piece of, of art because it was priceless. It's a body of work that I can't ever, in a future retrospective setting, revisit. You know the benefit um, and the value of art as an artist yourself. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think uh, I, I do stray away from the term priceless uh, because it's, you know, especially if you're trying to put forth a lawsuit, but, but yeah, getting to the value of art. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing here is for them to, to sort of double down on, I agree, Tina, what was clearly a mistake and say, Oh no, that's not art. Um, is just completely outrageous. I mean, you've got, you've got a very specific, uh, aesthetic, uh, representation here on a specific medium. They even, you know, they try to claim, uh, they said in the article that it was merch, that there was some sort of like consignment agreement that they had maybe, come up with. It sounds like they didn't have a great contract. Um, but, but to that point, I'd say you put it way up on these, you know, display, uh, ropes for people to see. And it clearly is more of an aesthetic representation rather than some sort of, you know, gift shop. Um, so I think definitely falls into art. Um, you know, and, and it's obviously very special to that artist and should have been returned to him so that he can, you know, take it to a gallery after that, whatever his next, you know, life for that art is. You know, as lawyers, I think we can argue both sides, right? We, we'd have to know a lot more. We, we need discovery. But I agree with you. I think they doubled down and they said it wasn't art. And that's super rude because it clearly was. It was clearly an artistic display. But I do think we need to look at the agreement. 
And what they said in the article was that it was going to be merchandise and it was going to be sold off to people later. And you don't think, I don't think the artist was going to show up and say, oh, look, now I'm going to sell off each of these bags and I wanted to see it again. I think he got his um, photos at the beginning when he displayed it. They had press, I'm sure. And then they were left there to deteriorate outside on these banners for months is what it sounded like. And that the people taking it down didn't realize it was art because by then it was they were tattered bags and they just disposed of them. At which point the museum should have taken some responsibility and said, oh, we didn't tell you know anybody how they should have disposed of or taken down this art um, display correctly. So there was definitely some negligence on the museum's part, I believe there, but hi, I have a visitor. Um, if I were representing them, you know, you'd have to get down to figure it out. I'm going to mute myself for one moment while you guys chat. Yeah, I think, oh, I think uh, to, to, to art counterpoint that, uh, you know, the weathering you, you would just say is part of the process. Right, that's right. <laughs> Well, let's go from the process to the truth. Uh, those are both MBA, you know, terms. The process was the process in Philadelphia. The truth is the longtime nickname for Paul Pierce, NBA champion, longtime Boston Celtic, and he's in some trouble now with the weed man. Paul Pierce has been sued by his weed guy. Yeah. So, um, Sam, you're a sports guy. Do you know how Paul? I thought you were going to say, Sam, you're a weed guy. You're, uh, yeah. No, I said he's a sports guy. But if you want to be a weed guy, I, I'm happy to call you the weed legal. guy, too. <laughs> legal. You could say that now. So do you know how he got the nickname The the, the Truth? I know. I actually don't. I think it was Shaq in 2001. Um, referred to him, I'm pretty sure was Shaq called him. I mean, he hit a lot of clutch shots going back to Kansas when he was an All-American and, of course, won an NBA championship. But I did not know that, that Shaq was the culprit behind the truth. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Reaching in her, into her deep knowledge of NBA nicknames <laughs> from that one. <laughs> Tina, yeah, do you I, know I, how I, Vinny Johnson was nicknamed the microwave? <laughs> very funny. I didn't know no, he, Well, because yeah, he got hot in 15 seconds. Anyways, keep going. <laughs> keep going. So anyway, so um, the truth is is in some trouble. So he ended up stiffing his weed guy. Interestingly, um, Pierce decided to call his CBD line the truth. I'm not sure if I would have necessarily taken a nickname that was given to me and um, I guess tag it to a bunch of weed products, but be, be that as it may. So um, apparently Pierce back several years ago had hired somebody to help him design and develop a weed house um, so that he could end up commercializing a bunch of CBD products. And a lot of stuff happened between then and now, but the upshot was that he allegedly had offered this guy $10,000 a month and had asked him to move out to Los Angeles to develop this weed house for him. But apparently things that were really slow to get off the ground, his pay got cut pretty quickly. And at the end of the day, he ended up leaving his job and suing Pierce for $42,000. Um, he claims that there's also missed overtime, missed meal periods, and so forth. Um, but I found this story really interesting because um, you don't often hear that a huge NBA great like Pierce, who retired in 2017, ends up uh, focusing his efforts on being the weed guy. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not an NBA star, so I wouldn't know. He's just doing his best to, to make some money. <laughs> gotta, gotta make some extra. I mean, the, the little known fact is that the missed uh, meal period violations were all Funyuns and Slurpees. That's what uh, 
But yeah, I mean, listen, uh, it's a huge industry, obviously, uh, now that it's legal. So uh, there's lots of celebrities, lots of NBA players in particular who are getting into the weed business. Again, to Olivia's earlier point, depends on the contract, right? I mean, you know, Paul Pierce is a deep pocket. I am a huge Celtics fan from day one. Sam knows that. So I'm a, I'm a Pierce guy. I will represent him pro bono in this case. But who knows? Depends on the contract. Depends on the contract. And this is in 2016. I actually had to right. look it up and see when it was legalized in California just to make sure there was no criminal activity. But, I mean, it's just like any other business contract at that point, I think. Well, I can't wait for the verdict to come out about the truth. Um, our next topic involves Chance the Rapper, local Chicagoan, very popular. He is being sued by Pat the Manager, his former manager right now. Yeah, so he's being sued for $3 million. Um, he claims that he was wrongfully terminated after what has been called a lackluster album by Chance the Rapper called The Big Day. Um, the allegations are interesting. I mean, this reads like, you know, a very bad made-for-TV movie. Um, and I don't know if you all saw the picture of um, Pat the Manager. He looks like a little bit of a scary fellow. So, um, but anyway, he tells this very torrid tale about how Chance had um, decided to release this album and had actually put a lot of pressure on them to release it quickly um, because he was trying to get a lot of interest in it pre, pre-launch. Um, he ended up canceling the tour because of lack of interest. Um, the manager claims that it was a lack of dedication and a lack of focus on the album that made it lackluster. Um, what's really interesting is that he was terminated back in, I think it was earlier this year, and he had decided to, in chance, had decided to turn the management responsibilities over to his dad and brother, and it made its way into the complaint. Um, Corcoran said that neither one of them really have any experience at all managing. So I thought that this was a really interesting um, story. Apparently, Chance's father offered this guy $350,000, and um, he ended up suing him for $3 million. So um, I thought that some of the allegations were really entertaining. In this I mean, it's interesting. It, it's, it's along the lines of what we were talking about earlier is like, number one, how do you put damages on something? And number two, who bears responsibility in art, right? I mean, who, said, who can say that the manager, by the way, that's his name, right? Just like his chance, the rapper, this guy, I guess, got first dibs on the manager, title and put it right in his name. But I mean, how do you assess responsibility, especially, you know, civilly from a damages perspective on who's responsible for a crappy album? I mean, at the end of the day, is that the artist responsibility or management? I mean, they're both pointing fingers at each other. You know, I don't think most people look at a crappy album or one that doesn't sell well and thinks that's poor management. On the other hand, you know, as someone who I have a production company. I, you know, I've, I've done a lot of projects. It's you, you, you know, I, I would argue that it is sometimes the responsibility of uh, management. You know, it, it's it's a it's a relationship involving two parties, and I think it's hard. Not uncommon though, but it is hard to assess responsibility when ultimately the public decides that they don't like the product. I mean, my guess is that it was way beyond the album, right? My guess is that this that this relationship was torched several times along the way. And at the end of the day, 
And that may have been the precipitating factor, but I'm not necessarily convinced that there was a causality here between this guy having a bad album and then the manager getting getting terminated. That's probably just the story as yeah. it's being spun. Right. Well, Shane, you're an actor, right? Uh, you uh, uh, have been in productions that are successful and some that are not as popular. Uh, is that a manager? Hey, I think you're just, you're guessing on that. They've all been perfect. <laughs> they are all huge. Don't absolutely, say that. Absolutely. Whose fault is it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there are so many factors that go into it. Um, I mean, full disclosure, I've met Pat, I've worked with Pat's company. Um, but, but I see it both sides here because, you know, for, and, and I have played both sides. I'm an actor and producer. So I've, I've literally, even on some projects, been on both ends. Um, and, and even outside of my roles, there's so many other factors that, that play into how successful art is when it's put into the marketplace. Um, and it's really tricky. I mean, I think the, the claim that Pat's making is that, you know, the, the lack of discipline and then kind of being undercut on some of the like business decisions, like the announcement, you know, and the timing, the, the scheduling and all that stuff. That's pretty valid. I mean, it's really hard for a manager to do his job when he doesn't have any idea what he's working with or when it will be available for him to work with it. On the other hand, you know, chances the artist, it's up to him to figure that stuff out and like, ultimately that album is going to come from him and, and he is, you know, he is the artist. It's not like it's a band or whatever it is. It is purely his show. Um, and so it really is kind of up to him to make the art first. And then that's when Pat has something to work with. So it's, it's, uh, I think what Tina said hits it on the head though, that this is all about the relationship. These two guys come, came up together completely and it was chance and Pat, like from the very beginning, and I think when, you know, we've seen this happen so many times when that is the case, it's, it's just so hard to sustain, you know, as, as priorities shift and, you know, paths tend to diverge. And I think that's just what happened here. And I uh, definitely don't blame Pat for, uh, you know, trying the lawsuit. I do think it might be kind of hard to collect 3 million, but maybe somewhere in the middle. Well, my question is, do they tell musicians that hiring your mom or dad as a manager is a good idea? Like, like sure they have no experience. He's like, no, you know, you're my relative. It'll be great. It'll, this will work out just fine. I think that tends to happen when, when the artist thinks I got this, uh, you know, and it's like, oh, well, I, you know, I'll, then I'll hire the family as a manager. Cause we're, you know, we're tight and you know, it'll, it'll just work out. And, and I think that even is, is probably a more volatile situation than, than, uh, having a friend. It seems like a lot of lawsuits that come out of that. Yeah, Sam, you need a the in your title from now on, a formal the. Look, I'll say it so nobody else has to. The big day did suck. It, it was terrible. I mean, compared to the last three tapes that he put out in this album, it was it was awful. And I think the, the true part of this whole conversation is that Corcoran alleged that Chance put out the release date yeah. before the songs had even been written or recorded. Like, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, isn't that common? Isn't that the way... Isn't that the way it works now anyway? Yeah, Shane, hey, the movie will be out in six months. Did we start filming yet? Nope. <laughs> uh, the, the best example there is I've, I've had directors announce on Twitter, hey, we're, we're filming a movie in February. And, and to be honest, like that, that has benefits. But yeah. I do think to say the movie is going to release in February, I will 100% of the time advise against ever announcing a release date. Before you especially have started. <laughs> well Rick, you have to call me Olivia the neighbor from now on. There you go. 
Absolutely. I'm still thinking of my title. I just want to Sam the. Yeah. Sam, the mediocre legal face-off host. All right. Uh, TMZ has this story. I don't know who Boozy Badass is, um, but he is suing Mark Zuckerberg for $20 million. $20 million. Well, you, you don't know Booty. Maybe you know him by his given name, which is Torrance Ivy Hatch Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, no. Nope. Yeah, Boozy is claiming that he was thrown off the gram because uh, he mispronounced Mark Zuckerberg's name. I think he called him Zuckerberger. And he's alleging that he was thrown off and he, I think he had 10 million followers um, and he can't, you know, make a buck, make a living now because he's off Instagram. He changed his name, I think. Um, he's alleging that that was done because of racism and also as retribution for butchering his name. But Sam, like many stories, there's more to the story. It turns out that uh, Boozy uh, had a long history of some rather questionable posts. Uh, in 20, in, in May, he put up a post on Instagram in which he talked about hiring an adult woman to perform oral sex on his then 12 year old son and 13 year old nephew. Uh, he also in 2017 in a birthday post aimed at his soon to be 14 year old son. He has 10 kids. Um, he bragged that he had secured his son, another prostitute to have sex with him on his birthday. That post, by the way, was liked by 27,000 people. He later said he was joking. So, you know, they think there's a little bit more to the story. He also has a long criminal history. He spent five years um, uh, in in jail on drug possession um, and also on a first-degree murder charge in 2010. So, you know, again, he's alleging racism. He's alleging that he was thrown off Instagram for butchering Zuckerberg's name. You know, in the era of big tech, we are seeing more than ever the social media services, um, you know, filtering, some will say censoring people on their platforms. Many are against it. We saw some of the big tech CEOs recently grilled by the Senate. Uh, I think this story plays a little bit in part of that. But at the end of the day, I think uh, given his prior transgressions on Instagram, probably a good move to kick him off. Um Without commenting on that, uh, everyone, I thought we would just get to a really quick game that we like to play on Legal Faceoff on occasion. Uh, this game is, of course, called Boozy Badass or Kenny G. <laughs> Often Kenny G, world-renowned uh, flutist. Is he a flutist? And it's Boozy called Badass. A fl- no, he's saxophone. Oh, yeah, saxophone. Yeah. Come on. Come on, Rick. By the way, it's flutist, not flutist. Thank you, Tina. It's not uncommon, Tina, that uh, Kenny G's music is confused with uh, the, our friend uh, Ter- Torrance Ivy Hatch Jr. So I'm going to ask you now to tell me, you guys could all buzz in, to tell me if the following song was performed by either Kenny G or Boozy Badass. Because again, their songs sound very similar, often confused for each other. Are you ready? Everyone ready? Hands ready. and buzzers. All right. Is this Kenny G or Booty Boozy Badass? Raindrops. Anyone? Kenny G. Sam says Kenny G. Let go Boozy. That was Boozy, shockingly. All right. Next one. How could an angel break my heart? Kenny G. Or boozy badass. Kenny boozy. G. Olivia says boozy. I say Kenny G. That is the beautifully haired, also Kenny G. <laughs> All right, how about 
Lost for words, Kenny G or Boozy Badass? Shane says Boozy. Tina, agree? Kenny G. Lost for words is Boozy Badass. <laughs> How about this? Um, this is one of my most favorite songs. It's, it's one of the more romantic ones on the list. Uh, the Bitch Who Stole Christmas. Kenny G for sure. Boozy <laughs> Badass for Kenny G. Kenny G. That would be that would be boozy. Oh, come on. How about don't make me wait for love? Kenny G or Boozy Badass? That's oh, that's Kenny G. Yeah. Oh, you know that one. Wasn't it South Park that loved Kenny G so much? There was one of those like funny cartoon shows that just always had Kenny G on it. That could have been, but that was in fact Kenny G. My last question on today's episode of Boozy or Kenny G is again, really heartfelt romantic ballad. Uh, really brings a tear to the eye when you when you hum it yourself. Uh, Choppas in in and guns. Kenny G or Boozy Badass? That's definitely Kenny G. Definitely Kenny G. That is the immortal Kenny G. Uh, actually, shockingly, both Kenny G and Boozy <laughs> Badass have, have songs called Guns um, and Choppas. Choppas and Guns. So with that, we'll see you next time on Kenny G or Boozy Badass, Sam. What a transition. All right, two topics to go. Um, this from the ABA Journal as well. Um, a lawyer's pants are charred from lies. I, I didn't really know what to make of this story, so I'm going to defer to the legal eagles to make some sense of it. Yeah, so this one, you know, every week when we do this show, we always try to look for those stories where you have to ask yourself, what were these people thinking? I mean, were they thinking? Absolutely not. Where do we find these people? Well, we find them, you know, knee deep in legal issues. That's why they're on the show. So this torrid tale starts involving a guy named Jason Sarver, who is a Columbus, Ohio attorney, who finally, after a long string of bad activities, we should probably call him the badass. He was ultimately disbarred. So the story starts in 2012 when he was running for office against Um, the local prosecutor. And the reason why they call this guy the prosecutor's panties lawyer is because he apparently went public with telling other people that his opponent wore dark panties under a light colored suit in court and that it caused snickering. He tells the story that she went to the bathroom, removed said garments, went to the judge, put those garments on in front of the judge and said, problem solved. Well, apparently this never happened, um, but nothing ever really happened to this guy. Fast forward to a couple of years ago where this guy got suspended um, because he apparently had had sex with his indigent client, not really something that you should be doing. Um, And then while he was suspended, he ended up taking on a wrongful death case pretended he wasn't suspended. He signed affidavits that he complied with court orders. He forged his client's signature on a settlement check. Um, He paid himself legal fees. I mean, the list goes on and on, but ultimately the decision was by the Ohio Supreme Court a few days back that he should get disbarred. And it just leaves me scratching my head, wondering where these people come from. It's yeah, like every I mean, rule. He tried to break it or did break it. It's unbelievable. On Instagram? Yeah. He, he should be kicked off Instagram more than Boozy. 
Yeah, I think so, actually. And I'm not really a big fan of Boozy personally, but this guy, it seemed like he was a real, real bad actor. Olivia, yeah. I mean, like Tina said, we cover stories of dumb attorneys doing dumb stuff all the time. But, you know, you read one of these, and you're like, what, what else could be out there? Pretty good rule of thumb not to mention any attorney's undergarments in a court proceeding. Yes? Yes. I mean, just what a jerk, though, too. I mean, just... Wow. I mean, reading that just to make you cringe and, and it just gives our profession such a bad name. And and I'm glad he's disbarred. I think they did the right thing there, of course. So he does not need to be representing other people and, and being an officer of the court. It's just horrendous. And now I kind of want to go look him up and <laughs> see who this guy is. No sex with indigent clients. Shane is the takeaway there. Yes. Yeah. Um, among others. Uh, un- unbelievable. I mean, I would say a movie should be made of this, but I wouldn't want to watch it. So. Uh, you wouldn't want to star in it either, I, I assume. No, no definitely not. <laughs> Our final topic on legal grab bag, and we appreciate you both for joining us here. Seven out of seven. It involves a break-in into the Brady Giselle mansion right outside of Boston. Now, of course, I don't imagine that they're there all that often because Tom Brady is now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, but a break-in outside the mansion just outside of Boston. Sam, this is your penultimate um, assignment here on Legal Faceoff. Your next show will be your last. You'll be covering this story soon. I uh, hope not. I, I hope not. In, in Bricklight Mass there for Nesson. But, uh, yeah, a guy broke into Brady's house. Uh, he now, of course, is playing for the Bucks, uh, And uh, I guess the house is for sale. And this individual broke in and was found lying, sleeping on a couch in the basement. No one was home, thankfully. This was a 34-year-old homeless guy uh, facing now charges of trespassing, breaking and entering. I guess my, when I read the story, my a couple of quick takeaways. Number one, um, was it Matt Patricia, perhaps? Was it the homeless person? No. The, the, the now fired uh, Detroit Lions coach, maybe, you know, ex-Patriots coach, uh, coordinator, maybe looking for somewhere to stay now that he no longer is employed in the NFL. Um, my second thought was, you're in a 12,000 square foot house. Um, there's gotta be what conservatively 12 or 13 bedrooms. Why are you sleeping on the couch, buddy? Go, <laughs> go grab Tom and Giselle's master bed and go to town on there. I mean, you're a homeless guy. I get it. Like any couch is welcome, but for Christ's sake, use one of those 15 bed- beds in the, in, in the 12,000 foot mansion. Well, my biggest takeaway was the, the selling price for that house, which is what, like North of 33 million. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking to myself, wow, being Tom Brady isn't half bad, is it? Or Giselle. Or Giselle, for that matter. She's got, I think she has more money than he does. Yeah. Yeah. She should. She's been doing it longer. How did I even get in, though? It's a $30 million house. Don't they have a security system? (laughs) How does he get in and start sleeping (laughs) on the couch? It's Brookline. They got no security in Brookline. Sam will find (laughs) out, too. Sam, hey, I got a good idea, Sam. You're looking for a place to stay in your new Yeah, go sleep on his couch. At least you'll get at least a week or two. How much would it cost to rent that? Like, if I were to Airbnb that place for one month, how much would that cost? I think you could cut a deal as long as you prove that you're not a drunken homeless guy. Oh, that could be tough. Yeah, I heard but, you tried, uh, uh, some of the air mattresses they had lying around, but uh, too much air had been let out. Yes, thank you. <laughs> That's kind of- it kind of brought to mind, I mean, not that it's like celebrity stalking is anything to laugh at, but it brought to mind some of the more famous 
you know, break in and hang. Yeah, it's one thing to break in. Like, remember the Bling Ring? They made a great movie of it. Uh, Sofia Coppola. It's one thing to break into a celebrity's house, steal a bunch of stuff. You get that. It's a whole other class of, like, lunatics who break in, not to grab stuff, but, like, to watch an actor, right? I mean, there's, like, did, remember the Queen? The Queen had a, a stalker who broke in, the Queen of England, and he sat on her bed watching her sleep. Do you really think this guy's a stalker? I mean, Brady wasn't even there. He's been gone for months. The guy's just looking for a place to sleep. And he Uh, wants and he wants to have a great story to tell. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if he had any uh, Super Bowl rings in there, Sam. Those are valuable, obviously, on the secondary market. Oh, I muted myself. You mean like in the basement or just in the house in general? I I don't know. Who knows? Um, That house is probably a treasure trove of collectibles, right? A 12,000 square feet house, you can imagine. If I were Tom Brady, I'd want to have those rings with me. I don't think I'd want to leave them. You know, I mean, I I would obviously have them in my house or somewhere secure, but I don't know if I would necessarily want to be leaving them in a house that's up for sale. Right, with no security system, apparently. Right. All right, well, we got to end off with talking about Giselle. We didn't give enough time to Giselle on that story. Let's go around the horn and talk about our favorites. Supermodels of all time throw a curveball at you, Tina. Let's go. You can't say Giselle, of course, because we just talked about her. You know, I I actually know a bit about supermodels. Oh, um, I yeah. love Christy Turlington. I will always yeah. love Christy Turlington. I think she's absolutely stunning. And Mary she's Pan on the cover. The reason why I know who Christy Turlington is the first time she really hit my radar was that she was on the cover of. The 1987 album, Duran Duran Notorious. And I was a big Duran Duran fan. Yes. And also married to the great Ed Burns for a while. Yes. All right. Shane, uh, favorite supermodel. Could be male, could be female. Doesn't matter. Oh, man. I didn't even think about that. Uh, I was going to go classic Cindy Crawford. That's the first one that came to mind. Cannot go wrong with Cindy C. Olivia. Uh, you know, I don't know if she's my favorite, but I can't stop thinking about Naomi Campbell just from that era because she was so crazy throwing cell phones at assistants and getting in fights. Wasn't that her? And by yeah. the way, a prophet of the pandemic, because there's a famous it's it was actually called going full Naomi Campbell, where she sprayed <laughs> down the whole airplane seat. And that was like a year before the pandemic. Who knew that Naomi Campbell was a prophet? My favorite is not as well known, but Stephanie Seymour. Remember yes. Stephanie Seymour? Very well known. I mean, married to Axl Rose, star of like a couple of videos, including the one of the all-time great Guns N' Roses videos, November Rain. But uh, Stephanie Seymour, yeah, she did uh, she did a bunch of Sports Illustrated. She was to a young, impressionable, rich. <laughs> so How many Seymour. posters did you have? <laughs> uh, quite a few, quite a few. Sam, Heidi Klum, Heidi Klum, still, still doing it. Still looks amazing. Arguably, looks better now. I would say. Don't you think? Sure. No comment. <laughs> Sam's lost in a, Sam's lost in a daydream of Heidi Klum. I was actually trying to think of a male supermodel, and I couldn't think of any. So I just Antonio Sapato Jr. Yeah. I always thought he was cute. Zoolander, those guys. Tina, <laughs> Tina, how many how many supermodels could you name right now? Like, don't do it, but how many do you think you could name? Probably quite a few. I'm, I'm not going to do it, but <laughs> no. Go. 30? I'm not going now. 40? Fort? No. 50. Not that many. Okay. All right. I well. 25. As you hear, as you hear uh, people clicking off as we speak, but <laughs> I can name easily 25 supermodels. And we're out of time. Yes. Shane Simmons, 
<laughs> Olivia Betty, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off. Happy holidays. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the.